Good evening and welcome to Knox Mente. Tonight's guest is Laird Scranton. Laird is the author of a series of books and other writings on ancient cosmology and language. He is featured on John Anthony West's Magical Egypt documentary series and in Carmen Bolter's documentary The Pyramid Code. He is also a frequent presenter at ancient knowledge conferences such as the Conference on Procession and Ancient Knowledge, CPAC, and the Ancient Mysteries Conference, the Paradigm Symposium, the Fringe New Jersey Conference, and the Megalithic Odyssey Symposium. Lair, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, like, hey thanks very much for inviting me on. The, I've been looking forward to this all day. So have I. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this all week and catching up on your work and all that good stuff you're doing. All right, so let's get let's just jump in. See, we already had our okay. private chat with Larry before you guys. I know we so. feel like we've already <laughs> chit chatted. <laughs> what? What do you mean we're not done? <laughs> yeah, I know. No, we're just starting, Larry. It's just oh. <laughs> we're just starting. We're approaching the labyrinth now. Um, all right, so let's take a look at your earliest memories in this life and the things that that really may have and and this this can be possibly things that are not necessarily tied into memory as well, because we know how uh, shifting memory is, um, but things that you recall that you think are associated with your early memory that formed you a bit, pop culture, uh, relationship with nature, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. Well, um, my, uh, my mother passed away um, a few years back, and a year after she died, we had returned to her hometown, which is also where I was born, in the panhandle of Idaho. And um, we happened to be visiting, looking, uh, trying to find a, a house that my parents had rented when I was uh, just an infant. I was, my, I was under two years old. Um, and I realized as I was in the neighborhood that it formed the background of, dream, of dreams that I you know, have to the present day. I had no idea in the dream that that's what I was seeing. But this is a, you know, a, a neighborhood that I had frequented when I was under two years old, and it still was a, a dream memory that popped up. So that was a, an interesting connection for me uh, to dreams. That's um, beautiful. What do you remember about it? What did you remember about it um, from your dream imagery that sh if well, the, the dream yeah, imagery went back and saw it all these years later. Well, um, I have a conscious memory of a, as a toddler walking along a particular stretch of sidewalk and coming to the corner um, with an aunt. Um, I have some other memories about um, living in the, the house that um, was in that neighborhood. Um, my earliest conscious memories in life are from when I'm about two years when I was about two years old. There are particular days that I know are, are fact, factual events that happened to me when I was two. I remember waking one morning uh, to discover that my father and my brother had um, had left to try to find a new rental house in a different city. And I was distraught that they hadn't taken me with them until I realized that it was Halloween. happened to be the day happened to be Halloween, and I got to go out trick-or-treating with a neighbor. Oh. <laughs> I, I have quite a few <laughs> memories that go back to, um, to that time. I can remember eating... Um, baby food off a spoon for my sister who's two years um younger than i am uh, oh that's like fantastic that. quite a few very early memories um had a number of um vivid dreams over the years that um that could have some significance um a few things about me and dreaming um i've always had a high degree of control over what happens in my dreams i can um 
if I if I'm interested in exploring a subject, I can choose to dream about it. If I'm interested in placing myself in a particular location in a dream, I can do it. Uh, very often, if I'm working on a book, I've you know I've finished up a chapter I'm working on, and now it's ready to move on to the next chapter. I'll go to sleep with no idea whatsoever what the next chapter is going to be about. And by the time I awaken, um, I'll have a fairly full, fully formed idea of what the chapter is going to be about. Uh, oh, fantastic. We can end the show now. <laughs> <laughs> you just covered the whole show. Um, that if, you, uh, if, the, if the plot line of a dream is going in a particular way and I don't, I'm not happy about the turns it takes, I can, I can rewind it and try it again until I end up with an outcome that I'm happier with. <laughs> That's remarkable. And so even when you were a young dreamer, you had this amount of control. Uh, yes, even when I was very young, I had quite a bit of control over what happened in dreams. Um, as far as the the writing work that I do, it's not at all uncommon for issues to work themselves out, uh, for symbolism to make itself clear, um, um, even for some fairly complicated issues to to sort of be brought up through dreams. Now, whether you, whether you want to think that that's my subconscious network or whether you want to see that in another light, um, de definitely my sleep and dream time is productive time uh, connected to the writing work. We'll definitely get into uh, your ideas on the differences of, of the architecture within the dreamscape and the philosophical stuff. We love all that. Um, so with this early part of your life, what kind of things in the outer world, and, and so this has to be in the tied to your earliest stuff, but just in your early life, what kind of things in pop culture influenced you? Um, well, I grew up in Oregon, uh, which um, you're familiar with. Um, there, there are a lot of things about Oregon that are, are fairly unique you know, to, to the Northwest that are fairly unique to our country. There's a philosophical outlook when I was growing up that was, um, you could describe it as a socialist outlook, uh, but it's really um, a mindset that's looking for um, cost-effective solutions that help a broader set of people. If you can, if you can do the, if you can solve a problem and help more people at the same cost, um, the places I grew up in Oregon would prefer that kind of a solution. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that mindset really uh, had a lot of influence on me. Um, Oregon had a very progressive um, outlook about schooling. Um, when I was in elementary school, every school has the problem. What do you do with the kid who's going to be bored in class? You know who. Um, and so the the solution in Salem, Oregon, as I was growing up, was the city on a citywide basis, hired a set of teachers who were qualified across disciplines. And they provided them as a resource to all the schools. And so one of these teachers would come into the school for an hour and a half every day and pull 10 kids out of, out of class from the fourth, fifth, and sixth grades and teach them whatever they wanted to learn. Uh, there, was a, there were shared sets of um, equipment. We were taught chemistry and microscopy and marine biology and taught about codes, taught about all sorts of uh, different psychology, all sorts of different interesting things. Uh, it was an, un an ungraded class, but a tested class and a, a really interesting ethic in the class that um, um, the person who got the, the best grade on a test, it was like a feather in their cap. Uh, the person who got the worst grade on a test, it was like getting the old maid in a, in a card game. <laughs> yes. Uh, 
<laughs> very, very non-judgmental non uh, type of education. That was really, really influ hugely influential um, on me growing up. Um, I was very fortunate all the way through to have good teachers and good schools. Um, Salem, Oregon was a very provincial place, uh, but about the time I was ready for high school, my family moved to Portland, which was a much more cosmopolitan place. Yes. And so I feel, feel like I sort of got the best of, of both outlooks on the world. Uh, lived a lot of different places. I probably lived in every environment you can think of from a ramshackle farmhouse, you know, to, uh, um, to a fancy house up on the hill. I, um, and everything in between. I can certainly, once I found out in our pre-chat here that you're an Oregonian, it made complete sense. There's just something about natives here. And I, I, I keep coming back every time I leave. It's, it's truly a great place. The people are so open. What, um, what kind of things, when you think, when you close your eyes and you remember about early dreams, what, what kind of um, imagery do you have what did the architecture of your dreams as an early person look like if it was different at the time, you know, if it's changed? So, well, I, I there were a number of, number of recurring dreams that would happen um, that I would have for a long, fairly long period, over long periods of time. Um, one of those involved the idea of being dropped as a child on an island, you know, oh. and with the, uh, alone by on an island with all the, all the potential things you would need to sustain yourself. And just sort of the the challenge of you know the, how much of a, a civilized society would I be capable of inventing on my own from scratch, basically. Um, but what's interesting is that the island that was imaged in the dream, and a lot of the scenes, a lot of things I was doing on the island, the materials I was using to do it with, actually tie to a, a real island I visited as an adult. Uh, it's called Orkney Island, north of Scotland. Mm. Um, so that that's one one important piece. Uh, there, I had um, dreams where I was allowed to um, to travel in a light a light bubble. I was allowed to go pretty much anywhere I wanted to take that light bubble bubble. And uh, many of my dreams were involved. Was it blue? Involved, uh, what's that? Was it blue? <laughs> no. Well, it had a had a bluish tinge. It was yeah. whitish blue. Mm. Yes. I had one of those too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and quite often dreams, you know, that the, the the idea of walking along, and that if you if you were light enough on your feet, you could just lift off the ground. That kind of a dream was very very common. I got a question. When you were back on, on Orkney Island for the for the first time, second time in your mind, did you have any interesting experiences? That was what I was going to ask Jerry. Thank you. Beat you. Well, the the the, <laughs> the common experience in the dream was. Um, trying to build a shelter out of stone, which is precisely what in the Neolithic time, times people were doing there. They're one of the, the common natural resources available there are, um, there's, a, there's bedrock stone there that is sandstone that breaks into even sections and even pieces. And so it's very good for building drywall structures where you simply stack the stones without any mortar of any kind. Um, and all of the earliest houses uh, that were built there were built out of these stones, and that's that's precisely what uh, I was dreaming about doing there. Did you have anything that kind of felt deja vu-ish when you saw it in real life? It certainly felt familiar. I mean, I, my, uh, my adult son Isaac and I both um, 
have visited there a couple of time, times and it feels absolutely um, like home to both of us. Uh, it all, uh, also has to do, uh, the feeling of home there also has to do with um, concepts of the dimensions of a place. Um, I was educated in college at Vassar College mm -hmm. in, in Poughkeepsie, New York. And when they designed the Vassar College campus, there was um, a philosophy of architecture called euthenics that um, basically a kind of a feng shui for, for architecture, the idea that the choices you make when you design um, a complex like that can be um, framed in such a way as to evoke a particular feeling. And the feeling they were, they were hoping to go for on, Vass on the Vassar campus was a feeling of well-being. Well, long before I knew about that, that philosophy, I was aware that any person who ever visited me on the campus would comment on what a what a comfortable, relaxed place it seemed to be. Uh, over the years, Vassar always ranks really highly on Princeton surveys of happiest campus on, in the country. Um, there's a tangible effect uh, from that. Well, Orkney Island has naturally has a lot of the same combination of dimension dimensions and relationship of earth to sky and you know structures in the distance to structures that are closer that it evokes this feeling of well-being and of of comfort yeah that's that's very interesting vassar is a wonderful campus i love it yeah i love it too um i wanted to back up a little bit and you went right into something that's very intriguing to me and it's the the light bubble you traveled in um can you give us more details on that? Actually, I would like to dig into that. Well, I was, I, I had the option to, to maneuver it any way I wanted to. I mean, it, tend, it, it, it pretty much responded to whatever I thought I wanted to do. And um, so other than you know, trying, trying to be careful not to, to fly it too low, um, I, could, I could follow um, highways and fly over bridges and just you know, pretty much take it anywhere I wanted to. Um, and very often the dreams would would be about that. I uh, can't remember really any um, particular details. It wasn't mechanical in the sense of of an automobile sitting inside an automobile. It was um, a non-technical, energetic shape. It's um, I, I find I travel like I, that's how I fly in dreams. Still, it's always been how I've done it. And when when you when you're in it, are you basically standing? That's a good question because. When I'm in it, I'm as comfortable as if I'm sitting, but I there's nothing to sit on. Right. And you can't have, you, for me, it always seems like, although I haven't overanalyzed it, but it does feel as if I'm, I'm very comfortable. It's, there's no discomfort, but right. in my mind's eye, it always seems like I'm, I'm standing. Uh, the image right. I always get is Glinda, right? From the Wizard of Oz. Right, right. And that's a very similar, <laughs> very similar image. Yeah. Like leaning forward and just kind of... It's like a it's a segway <laughs> bubble. It's like that's a segway. Right, segway bubble. That's yeah. right. <laughs> have you? Do you still travel by bubble? Uh, not very often. I mean, I have. Uh, there, there are other issues on my mind normally now these days when I'm when I'm sleeping. I usually have active things I'm researching and active questions I'm trying to explore. Um, so um, it's very rare that that I'm in search of a of a concept for a dream these days. If I were, I suppose that would pop back up. When, so in, in the dreamscape, when you're um, researching and, and you go from one place to another, do you just appear 
Does, is it like a pop-in situation? Does the landscape um, move around you? Uh, depends on the situation. I mean, I can, I can place myself in a location in my dream if that's, if there's a connection to a particular place and the thing that I'm, that I'm trying to work out or thinking about. Um, and sometimes that involves travel to get to the place. And sometimes it involves just being immediately in the place. Um, Interesting. For, for instance, there are um, particular ancient structures, uh, structures I've been inside of in the past. Mm -hmm. And if I want to set myself in a dream inside one of those structures, I can just, I can begin there. I can bring other people in with me. Um, I can bring objects in with me. Um, as I said, depending on what it is, sometimes it involves travel to get there. Sometimes it's assisted travel to get there. Um, my adult son, Isaac, and I were doing a, a dream uh, seminar with, uh, I don't know if you know who Robert Moss is. Um, he's a gentleman from our area who um, is um, intimately involved with dream studies um, and, and dream analysis. Um, and he had a presentation actually a few blocks from where I live in Albany. And, uh, and as an exercise in that dream um, seminar, um, my adult son and I both, without discussing it with each other, chose to go to the same place in the dream exercise. And this <laughs> <laughs> involves um, an ancient structure. And... Um, in his dream, a sparrow lifted him up into the air and flew him above and around the outside of the structure. He was hoping to get inside, but in the dream, he wasn't allowed inside. In my dream, a dolphin took me under the water and in through mm -hmm. an, an underwater entryway into the structure and up into an inside uh, pool that was inside the structure. Uh, Does that mean you're Pleiadian and your brother's not? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I know people who are vegan. <laughs> Maybe they have dolphin familiars too. Oh, Laird, you froze up. Is Laird froze up? So we talked. We mentioned Jerry? Palladians, and he just disappeared. <laughs> that's my fault. I'm sorry, Jerry. <laughs> At least he's got a smile on his face, and that's a crazy look. I wonder, should we text him? <laughs> He's still there, though. Laird, we can't hear you if you're speaking. <laughs> He'll drop, probably, and then come back. Sorry, people. Peeps. Let's go into the chat. Yeah, say hi to everybody. We have a full house tonight. We can. Amanda, Dave, Desert Rose, Lee, Beltman, Nightbot. Hello, Hello, everyone. Hello, Nightbot. You're looking sexy tonight. Occult fan. Greetings, brother. Oh. Excellent. Persian scribe, Rob Redding, and Rufus Cat too. Oh, we've got a good, good lineup. Hello, everyone in the chat. We're waiting on Laird to come back now. He's dropped out. At twenty-one twenty-one, he dropped out. <laughs> of course. <laughs> right when I mentioned Pleiadians. <laughs> <laughs> that's too funny. Right, and that's you know the dolphin thing was next on my list after reoccurrence. What, who do we have next week, Jerry? Um. I just put it in chat. I don't remember. I put it in chat twice. Uh, Mike Williams from the oh. Sage of Quay. Cool. Do, do, do. Did he drop this yet? He's dropped, yeah. Okay, good. It's not in here. But it's been a minute, so. 
is over. So there we go. Have you had any crazy dreams lately, Jerry? Yeah, I had one last night. Um, I was on, I thought it was the Grand Canyon, something like the Grand Canyon, driving around in a land speeder like Luke Skywalker had in the very first Star Wars, you know, that thing that oh, hovers. Oh, I love those. Yes. So I could jump the canyons, you know, the mesas from mesa to mesa. But I had some, I was taking someone somewhere and we were going past Las Vegas. And this is the weird part is that Las Vegas, from where we, our vantage point looked like a series of buildings that were shaped like body parts, giant body parts, like a giant head or a giant hand or foot that was all Ooh. white, you know, and uh, with um, like a stucco. It looked like stucco from afar, you know, white stucco out in with, you know, one or two doors. And out of those doors was like screaming colors and light and, you know, the casino inside. So at twilight, if you can imagine all these white, Body parts, gigantic, you know, a, a, a 600 foot head. Wow. <laughs> it's a multi level casino. It was pretty crazy. That's interesting. That but, is very interesting. And again, it was with a female who I can't, I don't know who it was, right? But was someone who's comfortable back. with, hey, he's back. Sorry, sorry about know. that. Uh, I think that's probably problems with our service, our um, Wi Fi service here. It's oh, okay. we mentioned the Pleiadians yeah, in you. In and, you. And that always that sets the AI off and they get, and no, we're kidding. <laughs> I was talking about um, uh, people who see uh, ancient structures described being in the stru in structures that I routinely go to in my dreams, but who describe them um, from what I understand to be a non-material perspective, not a material perspective. Uh, one of the neat things about the Dogen work um, that I do um, when the, the Dogen talk about scientific concepts, they uh, very often include a drawing that goes with the concept. Mm -hmm. But the, the, uh, there are four categories of symbols that are sort of dimensional categories. And every one of these drawings is associated with the name of one of those four categories. And so, and in some cases, they'll give us uh, more than one view of the same structure. So that from the perspective of light, it looks like. Um, uh, rays of light uh, coming out from a central point. From mm -hmm. the from the perspective of waves, it looks like a spiral. Um, being able to compare those um, those views. Well, Buddhism also. Uh, if you're if you're um, researching things in, in relation to the perspective of exoteric Buddhism, which is public Buddhism, you get one view of things. You hear the same thing described from the perspective of esoteric Buddhism, which is private Buddhism, and you get an entirely different description. And so sometimes these people I know who will be describing places will be giving me what I know as the esot esoteric Buddhist. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's just too excited. He's probably doing it himself. The gremlins are fierce tonight, Jerry. Unlike last week where it went pretty smooth, right? It wasn't as straight through. Which I didn't expect. Right. Right, with Louvre. Mm. So while we're waiting on him again, I want to get back to your dream. So these, this woman you're with in the dream. Yeah. So you were just describing her. Yeah, I put it in chat that I don't know who it is. I've never seen her face, but it's just this person who I'm comfortable with, a wife, a girlfriend, whatever. 
Mm-hmm. And has she been? In, she is in your a reoccurring element in your dreams all the time. Yeah, like Jung would say that was. No, oh, no, I lose you. Countersexual self. I, you you faded out there. What now? I know you did too. Jung would say that was your animus, so your your anima, that your countersexual self. I don't like animas. <laughs> of course, that makes sense though. Like my <laughs> my feminine up. side. Yeah, right. And a lot of times they um they can they can be they can appear they're familiar. They're always it's always very familiar, but they can change and shift as mm-hmm. you do. But that what really fascinates me about that dream imagery is the body part. Vegas is the body parts, and of course, it's Vegas, where so much there that you want as a symbol, and then all the body parts, which is kind of when I close my eyes. The head was right in front too. A good description of Vegas. I could I could sketch it. I'd like to see that. How are your sketching skills? The white, see the white sands were the weird part. Yes. Well, that's interesting. That's very alchemical, isn't it? But yes. The whole thing is, I mean, we could break it down in that sense too. Have you been, um, have you been, since we've been doing this show, have you been remembering your dreams more? In the beginning, when we started last year, it was not so much. If I'm having a decent dream, and I wake up and think about it, I can write it down and remember, or at least backtrack a little bit. Uh, they, they really don't want us to talk, do they? <laughs> well, they're, they're really, really on to it. We don't have to be anywhere. Every time, every time this happens, what I have to do is uh, uh, reboot my Chromebook, which is quick, and then relink to the Zoom chat. So It's all good. We won't ask anyone. Um, so... I was talking about Samkhya as a philosophy, which is a companion to yoga. Uh, this is a philosophy that underlies all the traditions in India. Uh, it also underlies the Dogen cosmology. Um, and in the view of Samkhya, universes form in pairs, non-material and material. And there's a flow of energy between the universes that's like the natural water fi- water cycle is on Earth. You know, water that evaporates from uh, the ocean to form clouds that then float up over the mountains and create rain that flows back to the sea. Without that cycle, uh, we wouldn't have life on the planet. And the Dogen are just saying, and Samkhya says, if it weren't for this cycle of energy between the universes, we wouldn't have life in the universe. So the essential difference in quality between the non-material and the material universe is a difference in time frame, how, how quickly time runs. Um, Einstein says that if a thing becomes more massive, its time frame slows down. And so if we're dealing with a non-material universe, time frame must be running ultra quickly there. That's what makes it look to us as if it's a unity. Uh, events happen so quickly that, I mean, effectively, if, if it took me no time at all from, for me to move from where I am to where you are, then effectively there's no distance between the two places. And that's what entanglement is. It's a time frame that's running so quickly that distance no longer matters. I, I love so, entang- I love all the entanglement love stuff. When so on the subject, since we're here, what about the idea of so with all of the matter, everything that makes our waking world full of matter and density and all that? Do you 
what is your view of say the earth so and not the world on top of the earth the, the actual earth herself or itself as um possibly sentient do you how do you see this well the way that matter forms okay there there's parallelism between creative themes in this tradition mm -hmm. that um three processes are parallel to each other uh, one is how the universe forms another is how matter forms and the third one is how biological um re reproduction happens or biological uh, life comes to be and so the process that okay these these themes are so parallel to each other that the dogen use a single progression of symbols to simultaneously describe all three of them. Now the idea is that as matter forms, energy that's non-material entwines with energy that's material to create matter. That's the same mm -hmm. process that goes into creating consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so um, because those processes are parallel, there's, there's a, a quality akin to consciousness that applies to everything that's in the universe. This is, you know, shamanistic native viewpoint. Yes. That every, everything has a potential for consciousness. And so, and so aside from the Dogon, what are your feelings on that? Does, is, I mean, I'm gathering that you are in alignment with this whole idea. Uh, yes. The reason I'm in alignment uh, with it is because, okay, my job is basically to test the reasonableness of what the ancient cultures I'm studying are, are saying. Mm -hmm. It's not my job to interpret their symbol. It's my job to compare how different cultures understood their own symbols and then test the reasonableness of what they're saying about them. Mm -hmm. So when you get down to the bottom of it and they say, we have a non-material and a material universe, and I went through a lengthy process to try to explore, could that possibly be true? I discovered, yeah, there actually is a perspective from which all the things they're saying could be true. Not only could it be true, if it were true, it would provide a very simple rationale for how things happen. Yes. And so, so I'm on board with the, the outlook. I'm on board with the viewpoint. It doesn't seem like it's really woo-woo at all to me. It makes sense to me. It makes scientific sense to me that what they're saying is right. So it's almost proof of animism. Yeah, it's almost proof of animism. A absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, now, the way these energies entwine, a good way for you to picture it is um, there's a structural difference between the material universe and the non-material universe. And those that the difference in structure is the same as the difference in structure of the, the two kinds of sushi you'll eat in a Japanese restaurant. One where the seaweed is wrapped around the outside of the rice. The other one, the seaweed is wrapped around the inside of the rice. That structurally is what the, the Dogen are saying is... The difference between the two universes. Um, both involve two energies, essentially the two energies that make up electromagnetism. So if you want to think of it as being magnetism and electricity, um, you, you could think of it that way. Um, there's a handful of simple dynamics that play out in parallel all the way up the scale from, from the quantum level all the way up to galaxies and universes. I've been following this this guy recently, and I'll, I'll send you his, his stuff, but he talks about how the two things, like you said, electricity and whatever, he would say that you've got the electromagnetic side, and then you've got the dielectric side, which, okay. from what he's talked about, sounds like the ether. 
So you've got the ether and then you've got the electromagnetic spectrum and those two coexist. Those are the two halves, the duality there. Okay, that that fits in a certain way with what I know. Um, Buddhism provides us with a diagram of how space emerges. Actually, it's not just it's not just a diagram of how space emerges. When you understand it properly, it also diagrams how time emerges. And um, it's the geometry that is at the root of sacred geometry. Mm. And it's the geometry that's used to align shrines in these ancient traditions. It's that happens this way in Buddhism. It's the, the geometry used to align a, a stupa shrine mm. or a dogen shrine or a shrines in Islam. Uh, in China, every shrine and every all of the original ancient cities were aligned using this geometry. It's very, very simple geometry. But it ends up uh, resting on two circles that overlap each other to create um, an almond shape, which is the Vesica Pisces shape. Yes. Um, referred to as the fish. Now, that space of overlap, from a scientific point of view, um, is the ether unit. This is the structure that the ether is based on. You can think of it as being the equivalent of ripples that form on the surface of water, that when the domain of water interfaces with the domain of air, you get these ripples. The suggestion is that when the non-material interfaces with the material, you end up with the same kind of interface, with the same kinds of structures. And in those, inside those little ripples, the laws of physics, our material laws of physics, don't apply the same way. That inside those ripples, you have the ultra quick time frame where entanglement happens. So if you can induce two electrons to interact with each other inside one of those ripples, you entangle them. And as, as soon as you interact with those electrons again, you disentangle them and move them back out into a, a material frame. And dreams basically happen in that same space. There's an overlap between the non-material and the material. Um, you might, uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, comparisons that, that I make to dolphins. You think about a dolphin who lives under the water in the domain under the sea, but every so often the dolphin has to surface and take a breath. You know, it doesn't matter how, it, even even the most capable dolphin can only stay underwater for a certain amount of time, and then it has to come up and it has to breathe. Well, humans are the same way when it comes to consciousness, that we live in a conscious world but every and in a material world, but every so often, we have to take a breath of the non-material, and that's what sleep is. I um, I agree. I I love I love that, and I you tied into something that I wanted to get back to that we were speaking of earlier, which was reoccurring reoccurrence, reoccurring dreams, and it ties nicely into entanglement and ripples. And so I'd I'd like if you could share with us some possible reoccurring dreamscapes with us dream memories and what how that all ties into this idea that you've been working on with the dogon mythology well dreams are complicated of course as you know uh in samka's samka's view the non-material side has perfect consciousness but an inability to act and the reason it has an inability to act is because it doesn't have a coherent moment in that quick time frame in which to act. So the non-material side is, according to Samkhya, routinely tries to induce actions on the material side. And one of the ways it does that is through dreams. 
So um, part of what's going on inside a dream for a person who um, allows and credits the fact that this is what's going on, they're paying attention to what's going on, is to try to um, communicate knowledge or try to induce particular actions on the material side. Um, so a recurring dream for me um, implies that there's a concept that's trying to be communicated that, that hasn't been through yet. Uh, some of the concepts that, that have come to me to explore about um, cosmology that I, I, I felt hounded about it through dreams, through recurring dreams, uh, one of them is a really subtle concept. It's called chirality. This is a, a scientific uh, concept that has to do with the symmetry of an object. Um, an object that's chiral isn't symmetric. If you turn it around, if you flip it over, it doesn't look the same. And so, but to try to, it, it's like a cosmic game of charades that's going on. Imagine trying to communicate to a partner the concept of chirality through charades. Well, that's when I have recurring dreams happen, it's because uh, my sense of it is that it's because there's a concept like that that is trying very hard to be communicated that I'm just not getting. Uh, and so if I have the same dream happen two or three times in a row, then I start actively wondering what is it that's in this dream scenario that that I'm not getting, you know, how, how dumb am I? How dense am I that I'm not getting whatever it is that's, that's trying to be communicated. Um, and so when, when you're having the reoccurring dreams, do you find that the, as, as they go on, do you find that the symbols become more dramatic? Um, um, sometimes, sometimes I get presented in alternate ways. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, I was trying to connect forward I know, do you know about the um the turkish site called gobekli tepe it's about a 10,000 oh, yes. site yes. Mm -hmm. so this this is Go where we first tepe. see <laughs> this is the first place where we see um symbolic evidence of the cosmological tradition that i'm studying and um there aren't a, there isn't a whole lot of evidence there to work from one of the things i was trying to connect was i asked myself what was the ancient egyptian term for that region of the world well, it turns out the word was get petkai, which phonetically, over the course of 7,000 years, or whatever the difference was between ancient Egypt and Gobekli Tepe, is a reasonable approximation of Gobekli Tepe. Uh, so there were a couple of different terms that I was trying to sort out, and one of the issues boiled down to a phonetic value, uh, penu. I had no idea what penu was. And I, I had certain ways of connecting it, but I just wasn't getting what's Penu, what's Penu, what's Penu. So then I started having recurring dreams. And in the dream, the dream was um, a party scene. And it was a darkened room. There were a lot of people around. There was music playing. There were lights flashing. But over in the corner against one wall, sort of in a shadow, there was a figure standing who was wearing a long Asian robe. He was just observing the scene. But as I scanned up from the bottom of the robe to the, the head of the figure, it had the head of a, a mouse. I thought, that's interesting. Why does it have a head of a mouse? Well, the first night I didn't think much about it, but when the, the dream repeated, I've learned to pay attention to vivid images from dreams that recur, you know, that happen more than once. So the second time I saw the same scene with the same figure with the same head, it occurred to me to look up 
ancient Egyptian words for mouse. And I discovered the word was Penu. Then from there, I started pursuing Penu and realized that Penu in ancient India had become um, a generic term for deity. Um, there's a, a matriarchal cult, a very ancient a matriarchal cult called the Shakti cult. And they celebrated yes. two goddesses. One was Dharni Penu, the other one was Tana Penu. These are sister goddesses. One One's name means luminous, the other one means earth. This is non-material, material, material um, pairing. And so uh, the dream was one of a number of, of esoteric sort of connections that helped me fixate on the concept of a mouse as being the, the thing that I had to explore. Um, that's the sort of way that recurring dreams work for me. If I ha if I I've learned to pay attention to any image that turns up more than once in real life in different contexts. I've I've had synchronic synchronicities all of this week um, that have to do with an African healing culture that I had been introduced to. Um, trying to distinguish between. Um, it's a synchronicities are a difficult prospect because even Samkhya admits that coincidences happen in real life. I mean, that are not meaningful. You know, you happen to bump into somebody doesn't necessarily have meaning. So a person has to learn in real life as well in dreams as in dreams to try to um, differentiate between what might be meaningful and what isn't. What dreams do for me, typically is that the images in a dream self-confirm their meaning. Um, there's a dynamic across the boundary between the non-material and the material. And the easiest way to picture it is if you shine a white light into a crystal, it produces a rainbow. You're going from unity, all the colors together as white, to multiplicity, which is seven colors differentiated. Um, that dynamic it seems to be an inherent dynamic. It happens anytime something crosses that boundary. Well, cosmological words work the same way. There's a single concept that when you look it up in the Egyptian hieroglyphic language or in the Dogen language, you have multiple homonyms for that, that um, you know, words that are pronounced the same way as the concept, but um, clusters of meanings that consistently float together in different languages. You find the concept same concepts in Sanskrit together, even though they're pronounced differently. You find the same concepts together in the Maori language in New Zealand, even though they're pronounced differently. Um, so this, in dreams, you have a typical dream for me is presented with multiple images in the dream. And if I were to go to an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary and look up the words for the, the vivid images or the vivid concepts that were expressed in a dream, at some point, you find an overlap in the pronunciation of those words. And when you find that, you've hit on the likely interpretation of what the dream's trying to communicate. That was a fantastic example. Thank you. <laughs> I don't, I don't same, think we can do any more shows now. I know. <laughs> the, same, the same dynamic applies to UFO encounters. I noticed reading through Bud Hopkins and John Mack's um, case studies of UFO um, experiencers, that there were certain events that would happen over and over again. I'll give you an example, that um, a woman steps out onto her porch and she sees three gray aliens on the porch. They don't know she's there at first. 
um, at, at some point they become aware of her presence and turn to leave. But as they leave, she doesn't see three gray aliens leave. She sees three deer leave. Well, it turns out that the Egyptian word that means to depart in haste also is the word for a deer. Oh, wow. That actually so, gave me chills. Okay, so the action that is playing out in front of her, there's a dimensional translation happening with this action. This, that was what the suggestion was to me, was that um, the action that we expect, which is for them to leave quickly, was what was actually happening. But what she was seeing was a dimensional translation of that. Very often, UFO encounters play that way, that the thing that the UFO experiencer says they're sure they saw, like a four-foot-high owl, or the very strong emotion that they swear they felt as a certain thing happened, these hold true from encounter to encounter. And they play as dimensional translations of the concept of the thing that was going on, or the, the strong feeling that the, not the UFO alien was experiencing at the time. It's almost a nonverbal onomatopoeia. Right, it is. It it really is, mm -hmm. and and these cl the clusters hold true. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. dreams for me play play very much that same way. Uh, I want to touch on this. I don't share my dreams on here a lot. I do in our our server, um, but I had had a dream recently in the last month where a, with the deer, and it was very close up to my face, and it was shaking its head back and forth. Um, and, and then in this, I became lucid, you know, very aware within the moment. And as the more lucid I became, and this deer was shaking with the big black doe eyes, it morphed into something else. I, I don't want to say, um, what it was because I, I don't know what it was, but it wasn't a deer and it left such a hard impression. And so you speaking of this connection here has given me a little bit of a trail to go down. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I'm going to explore this further. So did, you, so, did I hear you say, or did you say that there's no etymological link from Turkey to Egypt on the word tepe? Oh no, actually, there is. The further further back in time you go, the more commonality of language we find. Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, one of the difficulties in trying to deal with any sure, uh, interpretation. Any interpretation that precedes written language is. It's difficult to anchor what people back then thought. How did they interpret a word? How did they interpret something? Right. Well, one of the ways we can do that is I explored the word tepe um, in the modern Turkish language. Okay, there's another feature of language called ultra-conserved words. This is the tendency of important words to stay in a language for a very long time. So if you go to a modern Turkish dictionary and look up the word tepe, you'll find 25 different meanings of that word. If you go to an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary and look up the word tepe, you'll find a dozen of those same meanings under the same pronunciation. So, in other words, when the ancient Egyptians were talking about tepe, they meant the same thing mm -hmm. that the modern Turks mean when they say tepe. And so that meant I could use an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary as a basis for interpreting um, Gobekli. Yeah, Gobekli Tepe references. Very cool, very cool. Uh, I forgot I was going to ask. <laughs> oh, it was more of a geek question. You should have you played with Elastic Search at all? No, I haven't. It's, it's <laughs> Tell a, me about it. It's an open source uh, free um, free association database, if you will. 
So you could okay. put you could put all these terms in there and then do cross searches and whatnot and see what it comes up with for searching. You know, you put your research into it as you go along and then you can use it as a search reference. Wow, that's very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I've used online search engines when I'm I'm desperate to you know don't have a have a way to get a um, to get a fix on a reference. Um, one of the a really good example is I was uh, trying to understand uh, a Dogen character named Ogo who plays the role of light in Dogen myths. Um, and one of the things that Ogo does is he measures out the universe in eight billion steps. Now, I know that the word step is one of the code words for a cubit. A cubit can be measured by the length of your arm from the elbow to the tip of the finger, but alternately you can measure it as the average pace or step of a person. Mm -hmm. So I also know that the, the universe is much larger than 8 billion cubits, but one of the figures that is routinely given for the size of the visible universe is 8 billion light years. Mm -hmm. I thought that's interesting. It looks to me like someone's trying to set up an equivalence between cubits and light years. So then I went to the Egyptian hieroglyphic language, the dictionary, to look up words for cubit and discovered that one of the words is a compound word, aku-meh. Aku is a phonetic equivalent of ogo, the name of the character in the Dogon myth. Aku means light, and meh means measure. Mm. So here I had an Egyptian word for cubit that means light measure. Mm. So, so then I asked myself, how did anybody even know how big a cubit was in Egypt? What they had done was they inferred it. They, they took the dimensions of the Great Pyramid and found a common denominator and figured out what the size of the cubit was. And so the, the Great Pyramid in Egypt measures 440 cubits per base side and 280 cubits high. So I'm grasping at straws. I have nowhere to go with this. Uh, my friend Robert Boval says that the three um, large pyramids re represent they reflect the image of the Orion Belt stars at 10,000 BC. So I go to a search engine and I type Orion 440 and 280, and I turn up references to an astronomic body I didn't even know existed. It's hmm. called Barnard's Loop. It's a spiral, a spiraling birthplace of stars that centers on the belt stars of Orion. It measures 440 light years by 280 light years. Um, it's so wow. faint that... You can't see it with the the bare uh, the naked eye, but when you when you image it with time lapse photography, it produces uh, an image that looks like the wheel of a, a chariot that Orion the hunter hunter is standing in. Um, the Dogen talk about it; they call it the chariot of Orion. And the reason they say it's important is because that macrocosmic spiral is the macrocosmic counterpart to this spiral of matter I was talking about that entwines the energies of the two universes. And the Dogen description for their, their tiny spiral is precisely the scientific description of this macrocosmic spiral. They're the same structure. Just oh, on a wow. different That's astounding. <laughs> <laughs> so using search engines to find things is something that is really of a benefit to, to a researcher and to have a creative way to do that would be great. I'll have to try it out. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about how Ogo's legs must have, he must have an 8 billion year you know, <laughs> <a> stride. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how do you distinguish between, when you do these uh, comparative investigations, really, how do you distinguish, the, how can you tell if you're not reading the esoteric versus the exoteric story? Um, 
that comes with time mm-hmm. um, that different sources are aligned with a particular each each source is aligned with a particular perspective on things and so you're not likely to get um, a mixture of that with the dogen they tag it they tell you what perspective they're giving you uh, so that's sort of the toehold into what it is ah oh, look the dogen gave me two two perspectives here i can see that they relate to dimensionality um, you can sort of sort that out but when it comes to um, groups like Buddhism, um, you start to familiarize yourself with which images pertain to which um, which realm. Cool. Interesting. I, so I would actually like to snake back around to um, your dreaming of the dolphin experience. And I had a question. I'm just trying to wrap up some questions from earlier. Um, with dolphins and water in general, what is your experience in the dreamscape with water, deep water and animals within the water? Well, I've always personally identified with dolphins. Uh, Dolphins have always been my, if I had to pick, I mean, when I was a little kid, I would say if I had to be reincarnated, not as a person, I'd pick a dolphin. Yeah. Um, So I've always felt like I had the connection there. I I was always very drawn towards water and swimming pools and things like that. I would take you know, life-saving lessons during the summertime, spend a lot of time in, in water. Um, so my personal connection is, is that to begin with. Um, as far as the dreams go, um, my interaction with dolphins um, normally is a short-term interaction, not longer than it would take me. I mean, I could hold my breath for the amount of time that I'm underwater with a dolphin to do a thing. Um, it's interesting that um, symbolic language seems to be the rule, the non-material rule, that the natural way of expressing things is through symbols. Yes. Uh, dolphin, dolphins connect to that. If you go to a, a show at you know, SeaWorld or someplace like that where dolphins are allowed to freestyle for part of the show, mm-hmm. um, there are, um, I've seen shows where... Um, two dolphins freestyle together. And so they leap into the air and then down under the water and they're underwater, you know, maybe for a few seconds, but when they then emerge again from the water, both dolphin, it, dolphins are prepared to perform whatever the next trick is, the same trick. So somehow in those few seconds underwater, they've managed to communicate between themselves what trick they're going to do next. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, there are some researchers who think that they use acoustics to essentially create a, an underwater symbol that the other one can read and that they communicate with each other through, the, through those symbols symbolically. Um, and that that's how they um, arrange what trick to do. Uh, from my perspective, there are a lot of advantages to, to representing things through symbols. A symbol in, in Buddhism, uh, the original symbols were, were called uh, adequate symbols. These are symbols that are so essential to nature that they can't lose their meaning. Even if every initiate forgot what the symbol meant, it's a, a shape that can be observed with, with a microscope or with a telescope. And so anybody who has the right technology is going to see this shape, understand what it is, and automatically understand what it represents because its symbolism is its function. So originally, that's uh, that's where the sort of the rock rock bottom foundation of symbolism is these are the archetypes that that Jung uh, talked about. Uh, 
And it's interesting that the same set of symbols that apply to dreams are the symbols that apply to the cosmology. This is a, a consistent language of symbol. So in, in your world, in your life of dreaming, and um, I do agree. I think for me, the symbolic language has always kind of been the driving force, and which is one of the reasons why I like to live in, in these kinds of discussions. Um, but in your world of dreaming, and, and in dolphins in particular, give us some examples of other water dreams you've had, and particularly deep water. So looking for those deeper layers, those deeper symbols. Um, I have very early childhood memories of, of water. Interestingly, the memory that I have is from Idaho, where I was born. And the, the image is of light glinting off of water in exactly those ripples I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. That from a very early age, that was an important image to me, and I didn't know why. Um, water, in general, is the dynamic of water and the dynamics of water pressure are essentially the, the, the dynamics of gravity. Yes. That, <laughs> that gravity, gravity is to time frame, quickness of time frame, what pressure is to water. That if you take a, a hollow ball to the bottom of a swimming pool and let go of it, it will gravitate to the area of least pressure. Mm -hmm. If you take a massive object um, and put it in relationship to other bodies, it will gravitate to the area of slowest time frame. So if you think of um, a spiral as being the quote-unquote word of matter, the spiral of matter as being the word of matter, time frame is the voice of matter. Mm. And um, the reason that a lion like, a, like the Sphinx becomes important is uh, because it represents the the effective voice of this process of creation. Um, a time frame is the thing that grows uh, conceptually louder or softer, becomes quicker or slower in, the, in relation to the formation of structures, the same way that a voice becomes louder or softer in relation to the formation of a word. Do you, okay. And so within, within these um, parameters of dreaming, do you, over your lifetime, have you had experience with what people call night terrors or nightmares, the darker, um, more threatening kind of entities, stuff like that? No, I've, I've never had, um, except for very basic nightmares as a child. I was uh, talking with um, my family today that um, the childhood nightmare I would have when I was sick um, was really a very simple nightmare. It really only, it, it involved a dot that grew larger and larger and larger and then smaller and smaller and smaller, but the larger it got, <laughs> the, the sound of the company, it was the sound of a vacuum cleaner coming closer and farther away. That was the entire nightmare. Um, it makes me think of a fever. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, um, my experience has been um, almost uniformly a positive one in, in all aspects. I mean, it's not that bad things haven't happened in my life because they have. But my outlook is a positive one. I tend not to have dark nightmares. I tend not to have personal depression. Um, mm -hmm. um, I tend, and so my dreams are the same way that I have not been plagued with um, dark nightmare dreams. What about sleep paralysis? 
Um, I've had that a couple of times where I was at the stage of sleep where you were conscious but not able to move. Interesting you should ask that because, okay, the fundamental difference between these two universes is difference in time frame. And it's caused by this energy that scrolls from one universe to the other. So you, we can think of that like an hourglass with sand in the top at first that, that drains down into the bottom over time. Now, as the, as the sand drains, as the time frame shifts, the energy shifts, one universe becomes more massive progressively, and the other one becomes less massive progressively. Now, the one that's le becoming less massive is going to reach a point that's the equivalent of REM sleep stage. As a matter of fact, the entire process here is a sleep process. There are mm -hmm. four stages to half a cycle of the Yugal cycle that are very comparable to four stages of sleep. In the final stage of sleep, you're in a state, a person's in a state where they can't move, but they're perfectly conscious. They, have, they can pay attention to their dreams. Uh, they might even be perfectly, perfectly conscious of things that are happening around them, which is what um, you were talking about, about um, basically being immobilized while you're conscious. That's the state that the ascending universe, the one that's becoming less material, is ultimately facing. And about a third of the way into the cycle, the the universe that okay, this is a cycle that that um, it, how can I say when it, when it reaches a point where it reaches its full extent of energy scrolling, it reverses itself, and now the universe that had, had become more material is becoming less material. So both universes go through this cycle, and the one that's becoming less material realizes that where it's headed is this state where it's going to be perfectly conscious but not able to move. For, for a person, that's, that state is called locked-in syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a famous book and movie uh, called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly that was written by a French man who was brain dead. They thought he was brain dead. But in truth, he was locked in. He was perfectly conscious, but he couldn't move. All he could do is blink his eyes. And somehow he managed to communicate to his caretaker that he was still in there, and she worked up a system of eye blinks so that he could communicate one letter at a time, and he wrote this entire book one letter at a time. Yeah, I'm familiar with this. is uh, remarkable. <laughs> okay, so the non-material universe realizes about a third of the way into this 12,000-year half cycle of the yuga that where it's headed is locked-in syndrome. Now, oh. locked-in oh. syndrome is like being buried alive. If there's no one who knows you're there... Oh. You're, you're screwed. You know, you're conscious, but there's nothing you can do, and no one who knows you're there. So it realizes that it needs, okay, at the same point where it's going to be locked in, the way the yuga cycle works, um, the material universe is going to be most distanced from its ability to even know that the non-material is there. So at the same point non, the non-material is locked in, the material has no idea that it's there. In other words... Uh, it's going to be a horrific situation for the non-material side. So what they do is, if you think of these time frames as being like pressure, um, the middle of the cycle, middle of the 12,000-year cycle, these pressures equalize. And when they equalize, it's like an airlock. Theoretically, mm -hmm. it can move from the non-material side to the material side, which is what the Dogen said their teachers did. At that point, the Dogen teachers were trying to set up a structure for society, for humanity, that would preserve the memory of the fact that the non-material was there when they needed us to know mm -hmm. they were there. Mm -hmm. So essentially they were, they were grooming us as caretakers for them 
when they were in a position where they couldn't do anything for themselves. And that is really the ongoing covenant between the two universes that repeats itself again and again and again, is that they alternately, alternately take on the roles of caretaker and patient for each other. I couldn't help but visualize a seesaw when you were described, when I heard you talk about it on THC with Greg Carlwood. I just kept seeing the seesaw because you said hourglass going back and forth, back and forth. The, um, the interesting thing I kept seeing was the infinity symbol in all of those images. You've got, wow. you know, in the full cycle of both up and down, you've got a full infinity symbol. Yes, and actually that is a shape that's absolutely integral to the whole pro um, prospect here. There, um, I don't, don't know if you've seen pictures of, um, okay, you think about an orbit of like the moon around the earth. If, if you diagram that as if there were no motion to the earth or to the moon other than the rotation, you get a circle around a dot. But if you're to track it in terms of the fact that the earth is moving through space and so is the moon, instead what you get is a symbol that looks like your infinity symbol. It's uh, these almond shapes that crisscross. You get the um, same if you trace the path of the sun going around the earth. Uh, right, with the same thing. With the yep. progression of the, 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 the two serious stars, the same thing. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Okay. Now, that shape is called angular impulse. This is a concept that relates to spinning energy. It's what initiates spinning energy. Um, when two, two qualities of energy, different qualities of energy come together, they have a tendency to make that shape, to crisscross each other and cause each other to spin. They create vortices. That's the first under, underlying dynamic of the universe. And that's all wrapped up with, the, with concepts that relate to angular momentum, which is what creates mass. Are the vortices in the, both of the circles of, the, of that shape? I, I, bet, um, I wonder if they're counter-rotating to each other. Um, okay, yes, the two energies are, are rotating in the same direction as each other. Um, and they end, up, they, they end up entwining as a, a sort of a double spiral. Yeah. Uh, two energies wrapped together, as I said, like sushi, mm -hmm. uh, is really the best visual example I can give you. Um, Duncan style, right? <laughs> yes. So th that's basically what's what's going on here. You talk about um, being, you know, a conscious but unable to move in a, a sleep pattern. I have had situations like that where my brain was conscious, but I was at a stage of of sleep where I could where I still couldn't move. Um, I ha it hasn't happened very often. It's, it happened to me. I remember once when I was in college, I, I was um, keenly aware of the fact that that had happened um, to a minor extent other times. When you've had those, I seem to have a lag with you two for some reason. Um, anyway, so when you've, when you've had those, the college experience, for example, did was there any a bit... Was there any bit of alarm? Was it alarming for you, or were you just intellectualizing it the way, you you know, yeah. where you're like, I know what's going on here, and this is the dynamic, and I'm just going to ride this out. No, it was it wasn't alarming to me because I felt felt the whole time that if I really needed to motivate, I could. Mm -hmm. uh, just that it, at the state that I was at, I wasn't. I was I was in a in an immobile state. With, 
fully conscious, but if I had to rally and had to wake up, I could. One of the advantages I've had in my life is that when I was nine years old, I started delivering newspapers at 4.30 in the morning. And so um, I would get back from delivering the papers around six in the morning and I didn't have to be up for school until around eight. So that if I could fall asleep really quickly, I could get another hour and a half of sleep or so before I had to be up to go to school. So I learned to fall asleep instantly and I learned to wake up instantly. Nice. So, so that's, I think, partly why I w wouldn't have been concerned about that is because I know I have the ability to wake up quickly if I need to wake up. Excellent. Oh, I just remembered what I was going to say before, and it's completely irrelevant now. So <laughs> no, um, you're talking about qubits <laughs> and the measurement of qubits, and I couldn't help think about the quantum bits, qubits that the D-Wave computers use. Are called, right. They're called qubits. I mean, I, wonder what the, I don't know. It's just interesting. Oh, yeah. What is your association with that, Laird? Well, um, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm sure that whoever named the computer um, side of it um, had a, an actual qubit measure in mind. I'm not sure if there's really a relationship between the two concepts or what. They're not. You know, they're not related. It's that. just a, a homonym. They're uh, qubits are QU bits. It's uh, quantum bits. It's just a contraction. Now it's it's interesting that um, a qubit, an ancient qubit, is a a relative use, unit of measure, which is something, a concept we're not used to. We're used to precise measure. Mm -hmm. Every every yardstick is the same size. Every foot-long ruler is the same size. Centimeters, meters are all are standardized. If you go to uh, A.E. Behrman's uh, Historical Metrology, is a, a book that uh, catalogs many different ancient units of measure. He has a section in there on qubits of different cultures, and they're all different lengths. No two of them are the same. Now, the reason for that is because this alignment geometry that's used to align the shrines was measured out by qubits. It's the first, first um, exercise that's given to a Buddhist initiate to measure. Mm. Um, that geometry works based on the rel relative relationship of the figures, not on their size. It doesn't matter how big you make them as long as you're measuring consistently. The relationship of the figures is what produces the effect. So from that ancient perspective, they didn't have to care about it being a precise unit. Also, there's symbolism to it. Um, if you think about it, with this scrolling energy, our sense of time is changing constantly. It, our sense of time has been slowing down until just very recently. I think we just now passed the, based on my sources, we just now passed the bottom of the cycle. We're now in a phase where things have reversed. Energy is reversing, and we're starting to become, time's starting to be quicker for us rather than slower. It's noticeable. Um, so we're going to the spirit world now? And yeah, we we're headed, headed that direction. 10, 12,000 years from now, we'll be locked in, according to my sources. <laughs> so we have to start writing our stuff down on stones, right? So the last. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now if you think about it, astronomers use their telescopes, and they look out at more and more distant galaxies, and they start calculating things, and they say, this is odd. It looks to us as if the rate at which the universe is expanding has been speeding up. It's been expanding more mm -hmm. and more quickly. How can that be? They postulate dark energy to give it a, a boost so that it's like accelerating it. But they can't find it. They can't find it. The reason they can't find it is because that's not what they're seeing. What they're seeing is the effect of our own time frame slowing down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought recently it's reversed. It started, it's, it started to slow down the, the rate of expansion. 
Yeah, well, if it has, that that's the effect of this time. It should have mm-hmm. happened fairly recently. Now, there's another interesting part of that, and that comes down to the concept of chirality. Mm-hmm. Because people like Stephen Hawking say, okay, the um, I know, based on my sources, that it looks... Oh, oh no. <laughs> hey, we got like a whole hour there, so I'm happy with that. Oh, no. Man, I can listen to Laird go on for days. Don't see me interrupting him. No, actually, you're more talkative tonight, Chair, than usual. I've I've had questions from what I've heard him before. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So he's gonna have to reboot. I wanted to. I wanted while we're still on the subject too. I wanted to get on the nowness thing. So where these are overlapping, especially with his great analogy of the. Um, did you, hourglass. did you listen to his THC interview? Because he really went over that pretty well. I mean, I, th- I felt I understood what he's talking about. I didn't. And I'm going to, and I'm going to the forest this weekend. I, this last Perfect. weekend, I had it lined up and, and didn't. Mm-hmm. Because THC is my traveling show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Greg travels. No, but he covers that whole thing, and it makes so much sense. And especially if the one side, the, I forget what you call it, the spirit side, is like representative of the the ether Mm -hmm. the ether or the spirit realm or whatever i don't well but in context to nox mente which is what we're on um i want i want to make sure that we get that covered with that overlap between dream dream state and waking state which to me are easily overlapped into this whole template Oh, I'll At get you guys in the chat the link to that interview. Oh, in the chat? Uh, Jasmine Emmerich. I wonder if she's related <laughs> to Roland Emmerich. How is everyone in the chat? Hello, Every- chat. Everyone's going, ooh, ah, ooh, <laughs> ah. Except for Persian scribe, he's going, this is a, like a grab bag of unfalsifiable scientism claims. I love Persian scribe. <laughs> but it's entertaining. I love him. He's awesome. I, I'm teasing. <laughs> oh, man. So Jerry, for everyone that doesn't know, is sick. That's why his voice is darker and sexier than usual. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you like it. <laughs> Working for me, Jerry. Which well, is nice because you're more talkative. Do I make you horny? <laughs> Where was that? That was a while ago. There's Brent. There is. What are you mumbling on about? I'm sorry. Uh, someone asked me for a link to the THC show. There you go. Also put it in the show notes. And if um, please join our Discord if you want like really good show notes? Well, they're not really good, but they're better. Our little Discord channel is bustling along. I I get so behind in there and it's so hard to catch up, but so many people in there are we contributing. Like, we like your I'm behind. proud of it. Yeah, it's a good time in there and you can definitely find Jerry and I in there. Yeah, you find us, find me anywhere. Yeah, total, Jerry's everywhere. Total Although, <laughs> You are. Yeah, but thankfully, look at look at how it works out for the show. Okay. Jerry knows all the cool cats. Nah. 
Hello. Uh, welcome again, Laird. <laughs> Gremlins. Fancy <laughs> meeting you here. <laughs> so, so I have a we question. Talking. Okay. And it's, it's, an, it's relevant. And um, Jerry just reminded me that you go over this well with Greg on THC, which I have not listened to yet. And I, I listen to it on the weekends when I travel. Uh -huh. um, but I wanted to get it in the Nox Mente way. So glass uh, analogy you're using and if we overlay um, that say, onto say that, life and say that sentence again i you're uh, broke up on this end um in the last sentence robot girl in the hourglass um analogy you were using okay. um and so i want to i want to go deeper into that and so using that analogy with the states as you were dreaming and waking and how the center part is where the overlap happens and that's why i'm interested in what are your thoughts on the nowness that we experience in in, in tied totally into dreaming and waking so okay well uh it uh it's a little difficult to to explain um time Okay, we, we know that mass and time are are interrelated. Yes. A more massive thing has a slower time frame. A less massive thing has a quicker one. Works the same way as water pressure does. Less water has less pressure. More water has more pressure. The deeper yes. you go in water, the more pressure there is. Okay, now time, as it's experienced purely as a... Uh, non-material thing is an oscillation. It's the dynamic of that that dipole. It's uh, energy spinning is an oscillation. So energy on the non-material side is essentially that spinning energy. Um, that spinning energy creates um, resistance and resonance. And that resonance and resistance causes vertical vectors to be to to be emitted from that spinning energy. Um, as a matter of fact, there are seven vertical vectors that get um, evoked the same way that there are seven colors evoked from light as you pass through a crystal. This is the same dynamic, the same translational dynamic between non-material and material. The center vector, the one that's perpendicular to the spinning energy, is our vector of time. That's how the oscillation of time on the non-material side becomes an arrow of time on our side. So time works differently on these two sides. Uh, time in the material frame is like a cassette tape if you didn't have a fast forward button. That if you want to get to a particular song on the tape, your only choice is to listen to the whole tape all the way through until you get to the song you want. It's linear. Time on the non-material side is like a CD. You can skip, theoretically, you can skip around. You can go to the, the track you want to play it. Um, so now you were talking about the center point of the of the energy equivalent to that um, hourglass. Okay, if you think of this scrolling energy cycle as the correlate to a year, you know the concept of the great year in Buddhism. Then the point where the energies equalize is the equinox of the year. That's why the equinox is so important. But the ancient Egyptians, the word ancient Egyptian word for equinox was keper. Kepper is the dung beetle who represents non-existence coming into existence. In Judaism, a holiday at one equinox was called Yom Kepper. Yom Kepper. Um, yes. Talking about non-existence coming into existence. The holiday at the other equinox was Passover. And Passover, uh, typical, uh, traditional Passover Seder ends with the opening of a door to allow 
a non-material ent entity named Eliyahu to enter. So in other words, Judaism is actually every year acting out, physically acting out the process that the Dogans say happens at the center of this, center point of this scrolling energy. Thing, the energies equalize the same way that uh, um, that a uh, an airlock equalizes pressure between you know outside of a submarine or outside of a spaceship uh, to be able to enter or leave. You have to have a space where you've equalized pressure so you don't get blown out into space or blown back into your um, craft. So the equinox is the point where the time frames equalize, essentially the pressures equalize, and at that point, theoretically, things can cross over. So what about, okay, so then the question of consciousness within the now. So how, how say, in the dreamscape, we experience consciousness in a sense of lucidity, right? And, right. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely variable in what, people consider waking life because we go through cycles while we're awake as well of deeper levels of lucidity. Um, <laughs> where, where is the level of consciousness? What is consciousness and how do we, how is it popping around like this? How do we navigate with it? Um, well, con consciousness, okay, the Dogen say that life itself is not an energy so much as it is um, a flow of energies. Okay, so consciousness is the same way, that if you think, uh, there are reasons to think that the two hemispheres of the brain are correlates to these two universes, that they, the way they function in life when we're sleeping and when we're awake is the equivalent of the function of the two universes, that one of them is better at overview, more symbolic, the other one is better at details, more material. And it's the interface between the the back and forth between those two perspectives that creates consciousness. Just as you know, if you're looking at a a flat photograph, it's two dimensional. But if you can get two slightly different images of the same scene and look at it through um, like a viewmaster, now suddenly it looks three dimensional. If you get two different perspectives on the same thing, you get dimensionality to it. That's what consciousness is, and it's because you have these two. Um, that a non, essentially a non-material perspective working with a material perspective that we get consciousness. That's my take on it. Now, the question of a now, um, on the material side, now is very fleeting because all, we, you know, we have it, by the time we notice we have it, we don't have it anymore. Yes. On, <laughs> on, on the non-material side, there seems to be more facility with time because of the way time operates on the non-material side, my guess is that there are eras in which um, intelligence on the non-material side can really place themselves anywhere they want to um, in on the timeline. Uh, there's symbolism for this in Egypt. The way time was measured during the daytime was with the sundial, which is linear. Yes. It's a shadow that moves around a point. Time was measured at night. Night was symbolic of the non-material or of yeah, really of the non-material, of the underworld. Mm -hmm. uh, time was measured at night by the rising of whole entire constellations. Uh, the Dogans say that time on the material side is a glimpse. Time on the non-material side is a glance. Mm. When you see these carved pillars of Gobekli Tepe, what they've represented there is a glance. This is, this is a unit of time. There's even a perspective from which, um, you know, in ancient times, they... Um, 
the, the temples that were built earliest in ancient Egypt used these massive, like 700-ton blocks to, be, to build a structure with. And as time goes on in Egypt, suddenly they're building with smaller and smaller and smaller blocks. It could That could, could theoretically be just a function of time frame. It could be that if there's energy being controlled on the non-material side, that the shortest unit of time they could access required them to cut a 700-ton block. Yeah. Oh, man. It's, uh, okay. So on, I want to just make a note here. When we get getting a little bit in the later in this program, I want to speak a little bit about Gobekli Tepe and some of the fascinating images with what looks to be like um, those reptoids and stuff. But that's in a a little bit later. I while we're still on this thread, I would like to ask you about your concepts of death and the process of consciousness through that so how people experience um loved ones in in the in the idea of dreaming in the dreamscape in dream time and how that is actually so make that personal um, well the the according to the dogan the seeds what they call the seeds of everything that's real mm-hmm. live live on the non-material side now, yes. a way to think of that is imagine yourself sitting in your living room watching a television show. A television show is broadcast as, well, it, originally in broadcast television where, where it was broadcast to the air, it was broadcast as waves. Now, those waves that you know, the Andy Griffith show would be broadcast whether you watched it or not. If you happen to turn your TV set on, it would translate those waves into images that looked real to you. That's reality. That and everything that has any importance to it or significance to it is on the non-material side. So if you look at it that way, then when the episode ends, nothing really ends. You're still sitting in your living room looking at your TV set. The show's over, but nothing really ended. Nothing's happened to consciousness because there wasn't any consciousness in the show. The consciousness lives in your living room. Non-material and material is the same way, according to the Dogen, that the consciousness persists on the non-material side, not the material side. So when a person dies, it's like the ending of a show. Nothing happens. Nothing has really happened. Now, um, I see lots of reason to think that um, many of the paranormal effects that we see and that we can't explain um, could have a scientific basis if you look at them in the relationship to the 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 constructs, the, the structure that the Samkhya philosophy is describing, that consciousness might very well still exist on the non-material side. Now, from our side, when you look at it from the outside in, a slow time frame looking at a very quick time frame, the quick time frame looks like it's a unity. looks like there's no divisions whatsoever. I've given some thought to that. Like a That's collective not, consciousness almost. Well, yes, almost. But... Um, the way to understand it is to think about what happens to space and to distance as you increase, as you quicken time frame. Now, I know that it's a three-hour trip by car from Albany, where I live, to New York City. I could go there. I could choose to travel there any number of ways. I could walk there. I could pogo stick there. I could ride a horse. I could ride a bicycle. I could drive a car. I could get in a bus. I could take a train. I could fly in an airplane. I could fly in a jet. I could fly in a Learjet. The amount of time it takes me to get there quickens depending on which mode of delivery I use to get there. But the distance itself doesn't really shorten. It's only the effective distance of how it affects me that shortens. 
if I go there with a faster method, it seems like it's a shorter distance, but it isn't really. The distance is still there. Just the distance doesn't have the same meaning it used to have. So my perspective on the non-material is that it isn't that space doesn't exist. It isn't that the non-material is actually a unified thing. It behaves like a unified thing because time is so quick that distance no longer has any meaning. And as you slow time frame, suddenly that distance that was always there anyway starts to have meaning again. So it's perfectly possible that what's individualized on the, on the material side in the way of consciousness, if you think of individuals as being subdivisions of a grand consciousness, that on the non-material side, it might still be subdivided, but looking from the outside in because of how quick the time frame is, it looks like a unified consciousness. I love that. Does that make any sense? <laughs> made sense to me. These really great analogies. Uh, I'm just bowing at you right now, Larry. The real trick of what I do is trying to come up with a way of expressing an idea that has any intuitiveness to it, because some of these ideas are really off the wall. Absolutely. You, you're really masterful. Uh, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... On this, and before we close out this kind of section, do in your dreams and in your life of dreaming, have you encountered people that have passed that you know? Um, not so much in dreams. Uh, it, it does happen in dreams, but it also happens in real life. Um, my uh, wife and I went to see John Edwards, a psychic. Yes. Who I'm so a lot sorry. Of people would, a lot of people would say is complete hooey. On the way to the show, which there were about 300 people in the audience that day, on the way to the show, driving in the car, we were joking about, well, gee, if one of our deceased relatives were to come through, which one would we want to see? Which one would we want to talk to? And we were, you know, tossing around different ideas. And finally, I said, you know, with our luck, if somebody came through, it's going to be your crazy Uncle Seymour. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we get to the show, and about a half an hour into the, the event, John Edwards interrupts himself in mid-sentence, talking to somebody else, turns and looks right directly in our direction and says, who is Seymour? Oh, my goodness. Nobody else <laughs> in the room claims that Seymour except us. Okay, so we explain that Seymour is Reese's uncle. Then he says, okay, so who is Harry? And she says, well, he's another of my uncles. He, he wasn't related to Seymour, but he's another of my deceased uncles. He said, okay, now who's the accountant? We said, well, that's the third one of my uncles who's also deceased. Uh, his name was Sam. Well, he says, the accountant is pushing his way through. He says, he wants me to tell you that he's looked over your finances and the investments you have are mostly okay, except about a quarter of them should be, we should rethink and retweak those, that quarter, but everything else is okay. Great. Just what we wanted to learn at, at, at John Edwards's event. <laughs> so as it turns out, we actually have been doing work with an uh, uh, investing investment counselor to try to go over um, how should we invest the money that we had to produce some income. And um, the next week, he called up, made an appointment to see us, came to our house, and he walked in the door and he said, I want to tell you off the top that everything you've invested is pretty much okay, except a quarter of it really should be tweaked. <laughs> and we thought, oh, wow. you're not, not telling us anything new. We've already been told that. Uh, there, are, there is a perspective from which 
contact with deceased consciousnesses might make sense. The Dogen say that a person has four souls, four consciousnesses, and that one of those is offered an opportunity when a person dies to hang around and watch over friends and relatives and family and, to, and reassure itself that, that everything's going forward okay for the people it knows and loves. Now, a certain number of those, okay, the purpose of, of a, a funeral is to represent to that soul that things are so good here that it, there's no reason for it to hang around and waste its time doing that and it should just leave. There are a certain number of deceased souls like that that choose not to leave and then never have an opportunity to go uh, to leave. So the Dogen routinely, as a culture, hold generic funerals for these souls that are looking for another opportunity to get out. <laughs> now, I'm not saying I believe everything that the Dogen say. I'm saying that the way the structure is organized according to Samkhya, and when you compare how different ancient cultures looked at this structure, the Kabbalists, the Buddhists, the Dogen, the Egyptians, um, other groups, that there's a perspective, there's a thinkable path by which those things could be true. This is um, this is remarkable. The the John Edwards stuff too, unbelievable. Just, <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> I really, you know, I I never give much thought to people like that, and I'm open either way. Um, but to hear such a story from you, and <laughs> laid out in such a way that you had, you, you know, you and your wife had brought up Seymour beforehand. <laughs> Un well, uncanny. Well, yeah, the first thing a person learns in my field of study is that there are things going on we can't explain. Yes. Um, some of them for me have been extremely tangible and witnessed, and others have been very intangible. Um, they include such things as back in the 90s, there was a very obscure book I was looking to get as a source for myself and exhausted every possibility of being able to buy it. You couldn't go online then and search for it. I'd even exhausted interlibrary loan services to see if Vassar um, College, my, where I had gone to school, could get it for me, and they couldn't get it. And I finally came back to my wife and said, you know, um, I'm not going to be able to get that book. Looks like I'm not going to be able to get that book. Well, a couple of days later, a box turns up on our back doorstep. Risa had an aging cousin who was living in oh. Queens, New York, in an apartment <laughs> who every so often would hit... Uh, critical mass and pack up a bunch of random crap out of his apartment, toss it in a box and mail it off to some relative. And in the box was my book. Oh, wow. <laughs> Chills. <laughs> You're not the first person who's told us. This. I mean, yeah. almost all the authors we've had on have had that experience. Yes, yes. And every author I talk to, it's like talking to myself. I say, you know, have you had any odd experiences? And it's just like you open a floodgate and there's just story after story. Of, <laughs> once you start paying attention to it, it's like I compare it to the guy from Eastern Europe who goes to a party in New York. He doesn't speak much English, but he discovers about partway through, you know, halfway through the, the party that there's some guy over in the corner who speaks a little Ukrainian. Well, yes. he, he's going to gravitate to that guy and try to talk to him the whole rest of the night. That's right. the way the non-material is with anybody who pays attention to mm -hmm. it. But this is what's reassuring to me is that those of us that you know, when we come together and we hear this, there's um, a commonality that binds us and also fuels further inquiry uh, <laughs> into these things. It's it's refreshing. It makes me wonder if it's just not our 
another copy of us on the other side? Well, in esoteric Buddhism, the final level of ascension is coming to a visceral understanding that it's all one consciousness. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it is just us on the other side. Yes. <laughs> I didn't mean well, it that way, but I will accept that. You know, mm -hmm. looking at the, the symbolic system that I've been studying for 20 years, there have been points in the process where it looked so much like my work that I was confused about it not being my work. I could predict, you know, every time oh, wow. I would, it would come to my mind to say, gee, if I had been the one designing the system, I would have done, you know, thus and so. Right. I go and I search and sure enough, somebody thought to do it. It looks like my work. In your code or in your authoring? Just, well, both. It's, it's mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, skills that apply themselves to software design are the same, some of the same skills that apply mm -hmm. themselves to this work. Right. Um, I've had similar things happen where I found that I wrote things that before that I thought I didn't. I'm like, oh, I did write that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't remember doing that, but I guess I wrote it. You have probably also had um, problems solved in your dreams as well. Or questions yes, absolutely. answered. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I'll, I'll come out of dreams um, with a mission, you know, to try mm -hmm. to remember a particular thing. The, th the thing about anything that happens in a non-material mode, you tend not to remember. It's only if you can bring it into conscious memory that it it's recalled. And what hypnotism does is it's able to step back into that space that's controlled by the non-material and help you to consciously bring things back into material memory, conscious memory. Uh, but yes, things, problems get solved in dreams for me um, all the time. Yeah, you, you kind of opened excellent. with that when you gave us that fast synopsis that covered our whole show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I, well, I was expecting it from you, Laird, so I'm, you know, <laughs> happily amused. I want to I want to get into a little bit of what we call the woo woo, and with you in particular. Let me ask one non woo question real quick. Okay, yes. Uh, regarding okay. the Dogon, is there any connection between the Dogon um, deity? They were fish people, right? That came out of the water, isn't that right? The story and the the fish hats that the Vatican wears. Um, yeah, absolutely. The I think there um, my perspective is, okay, the Dogen are saying that we're, we're looking at an instructed tradition and that their, their teachers for this instructed tradition were originally non-material. The way that you hear descriptions in the Bible of Moses on the mountain with a non-material God, the Dogen don't treat it as a God, but you have a non-material entity on the mountain that, who presents a danger to the Israelites. They're, they're cautioned to stay, keep their distance away from the mountain because of the bad effects. But the Dogans say that the, their teachers had the same concern, and the way they solved it was by sequestering ten tribes people in a remote. I'm sorry, eight tribes people in a remote location, teaching them there and sending them back to teach everybody else. That's the dynamic we see play out everywhere, mythically, of the eight ancestors who come with civilizing skills. Mm. From my point of view, that happened in a real place. It happened on Orkney Island in northern Scotland, mm. and the Dogan, from my perspective, were uh, enlisted as basically uh, graduate students to teach classes. They were the ones who were the interface to the new initiates. Um, the Dogon were called, the, okay, they're Scandinavian sagas that report um, finding two groups on Orkney in old to olden times. One group was a group of uh, pygmies, a very 
um, strange habits who are like sorcerers. Hobbits, you said? Uh, and you, what's that? <laughs> was... Yes. Now, the, the, the Dogon refer to them as the Numo, mm -hmm. an Egyptian name for pygmy is Nema. Mm -hmm. And the vowel sounds aren't oh, certain. Yes. So, so it could be the same word. The Dogon were called Pape, and Pape become popes. Mm -hmm. So I see there's a direct connection from the Dogon priesthood mm -hmm. eventually to what became the popes of Catholicism without the the child abuse. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know, but that might have came with the hat. I joke that when I grew up in Salem, Oregon, a child was safe anywhere as long as they weren't with the priest. <laughs> that was yes. true in Chicago, too. That's some good old wisdom. <laughs> Um, okay, and actually, my woo-woo is not so woo-woo because the there's the there are those very intriguing statues at Quebecois Tepe that appear to have like um, I don't know if they're reptoidish. You know, the one I'm talking about in particular, where it's yes. holding a human-looking thing. Um, yeah, we have a, one figure from that area called Urfa Man that sort of is a, has a bird-like face, um, standing with very rigid arms. Uh, we also have. Oh, or are you talking about carvings on the pillars? The pill. I think it's the pillar where they're. It's like embracing or holding. Looks like a totem, a human. Now, now that's another interesting case. Um, I was trying to understand what. Okay, there on this one pillar, on the two sides of this narrow pillar, there are carved arms that sort of emerge amorphously out of the side of the pillar, come down the sides of the pillar to hands that wrap around the end like this. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now. I was trying to understand what that represents, and I wasn't coming up with an answer. But what I was doing in my spare time was I was researching a half a dozen questions about language for people I knew, other researchers, other friends. Um, one morning in July of this particular year, I resolved all half dozen questions with words from the same column of the same page of the Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary, and the seventh word on the same page led me to understand that the Egyptian word for pillar was also a word for embrace. That what they were trying to communicate with that car those carved arms and hands that are so stiff and unwelcoming, they were trying to convey the concept of a, a loving embrace. This is one of the things that interests me is the uh, efforts that didn't wholly succeed artistically, where it's it's very clear what a thing was supposed to represent, but the execution of it was less than perfect or less than stellar. The concept of an embrace yes. is critical critical to this whole process. It's, it's what leads you to understand that these energies come together in a particular way. Uh, virtually every cosmological word that has importance in the Egyptian hieroglyphic language has a homonym that means embrace. That also reminded me of the collateral ring when you did that. Uh, yes, yes, yep. Hmm. <laughs> All the the same concept. Yeah, uh, and exactly. there are lots uh, at Gobekli Tepe, you have yeah. half a dozen different ways of representing non-material and material energies coming together. The That carved H sign, you, in several places you see a carved symbol that looks like an H, mm -hmm. that survived in the Masonic tradition to re as representing uh, non-material and material energies come together. It's the same... Uh, configuration as the the body shape of a dung beetle, Kemper, mm. who represents not non-existence coming into existence. I'm getting um, the chills now. 
how do you see the 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 variation or how does this how do these concepts fit into all this and the concepts are um the concept of the soul and the spirit okay so i know you just talked about the four the four consciousnesses that the dogon speak of and how one stays back and all that and so somehow it seems like it may be tied in well light entwines with or basically magnetism entwines with electricity light entwines with matter to produce matter or, or non-material energy entwines with material energy to produce matter the same process happens with life that there's a component to life that involves that same entwining of light-like energy to produce a result and so Whereas uh, we have a foot in the non-material just by existing. It's the interplay between the non-material and the material perspectives that creates consciousness. It's that same interplay that creates um, life. Um, there was a study that was done recently that showed that um, a DNA molecule can't perform its function without quantum effects. Um, those quantum effects take us into the realm of the non-material. You uh, before the the show started here, we were talking about particles of matter that, if you spin them around, pass into the non-material. That's one of the scientific um, effects that directly points to the existence of a non-material domain. That's sort of a blind spot for us. It's like I compare it to the blind spot in your car. When you were learning how to drive the car, a car, um, if someone hadn't told you that. The mirrors didn't show you everything that there was you could hide a tractor trailer truck in the in the spaces that were hidden you might not have realized that there were hidden spaces well science is in the same situation there there's this huge blind spot that represents the paranormal things the non-material things that is pointed to by those spinning particles in fact um the geometry i was talking about that's used to align the stupa shrine it occurred to me before I wrote my my last book, uh, one of my recent books is called Seeking the Primordial. Uh, what triggered that book was my thinking to ask a question that no other researcher I knew, including myself, had asked. And that is, could that those set that sacred geometry that's used to align the shrine, could that be the geometry of a thing, of something? And I did some study and determined that's the geometry of these spin particles that have the potential to pass into the non-material. In other words, the very layout of these shrines is pointing us, is specifically pointing us to that kind of a particle because that particle is where we have the potential to understand there's a blind spot. Um, so it's a very, very interesting set of, set of connections, but um, consciousness for me and soul spirit, um, life is a movement of forces. And the essential movement of forces that's allowing life to happen involves a non-material energy coming together with the material energy. You don't have life without the motion of those forces together, the interaction of those forces together. So, um, granted, everything. Oh, I put the phrases. So, what about like robots or androids? Do you think that they can contain a consciousness, or would they? That's where I was going, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, Yes, potentially they can. And the re the way they can is that if, if a programmer were smart enough to mm -hmm. set up a dynamic, dynamic that could seamlessly shift between an overview perspective 
and a detailed perspective, um, you would automatically end up with consciousness from my point of view. Hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, for me, you know, everything in life is handled by one or the other, primarily by one or the other hemisphere of your brain. Now, occasionally you encounter a situation where for a moment, there's a negotiation that has to happen to decide which one, which hemisphere of the brain is going to run with this. Mm-hmm. And that's what humor is. Humor happens there. Mm-hmm. A humorous thing is something that is confusing enough that it's not immediately clear which hemisphere of the brain is supposed to run with it. Is this overview or is this detail? Who's got it? Who's carrying uh, the, the magic? So what comedians <laughs> operate in the, in the balance while there? The, yeah, while that negotiation is going on, you have laughter. Because mm-hmm. what else are you going to do? <laughs> and that's why it's so that's what's so magical about humor i think <laughs> yes because it forces you to look at things from more than one in more than one way mm-hmm, absolutely i force myself to do that <laughs> <laughs> all right Nish, it's all you and i get questions when you're done i think so i think that kind of um I think that gets me where I want to go with this. You know, like I said, Laird, you you really wrapped up a lot in the first five minutes <laughs> <laughs> with what with your experience of dreaming, and um, I think we should move on to questions. Okay. So someone asked, it was a cult fan asks, uh, "What do you make of interdimensionals versus aliens?" The whole. Uh, ETH versus the anti-ETH. See, there's some will-will. Um, from my perspective, what we're seeing as UFO phenomenon is interdimensional. It's inter, actually inter-universe, which has dimensionality to it. Um, it's really inter-time frame stuff. Mm. But the way that the energy presents itself naturally, if you don't do anything with it, is the symbol, the Egyptian symbol for mass, which is the the interface between non-material and material is a hemisphere, which is the shape of a, of a UFO, mm. the shape of a, a typical flying saucer. Um, all, all of the motion effects that we see with a UFO imply that we're seeing these are things that shouldn't be able to happen in a material frame all by itself. There's something more than regular material physics going on there. Mm-hmm. This is inter, inter-universe, inter-time, interdimensional stuff. Um, I also think that it's possible that there was a combination of effects in ancient times between you know, traditional sci-fi aliens who are off-planet and non-material interface with the material world, which is what the Dogans say were going, was going on. It looks to me as if there were numerous numbers of groups that were involved with us, and they may have had different sources. So we can't really flatly say that it's one thing or the other. We may have had an intermix of both things, and not always with, with good intention. So, so do you think that there's a non-material side to this material realm versus, that's a bad way to put it, if they were interdimensional, would they be coming from the non-material side of the thing that you explained? The, yes. That, okay, not yes, necessarily it, non-material, not a separate dimension, if you would, of ours. Right. Now, that's tricky to say because from the Dogen perspective, there are seven pairs of universes that configure themselves in a helix like DNA does. And Mm -hmm. the implication is that the potential for life is built right into the structure of the universe. As a matter of fact, Dogen numerology implies that the two universes constitute an individual. And that concept is upheld in other traditions. In Kabbalism, there's a concept of a primordial individual. In 
ancient Egyptian language, there's a concept of a primordial individual. The implication is that the two universes function as a consciousness in the same way that our, the two hemispheres of our brain do that. So the inter interdimensional contact would be, uh, could be primarily between our paired non-material universe and us. But if we have other pairings of universes out there, there I couldn't absolutely say that there's not right. somehow contact between those. And we might be thinking of those other universes as quote-unquote dimensions anyway, for all right, we know. Right, we might. That's right. I mean, there may be, we see four dimensions, and we're the, we are, the, according to the Dogen, we're the fourth of seven dimensions. So that actually implies um, that they all are, are dimensional, that, that each of these pairs of universes represents a dimensional view. Interesting. Very cool. All right, I have another question from Joseph Coria. Korea, sorry if I mispronounce it. Based on your research or experience, do you have any advice for initiating contact slash interaction with the non-material world? Basically, sure, it's very, very easy. Hmm? Very, very simple. Pay attention to it, credit it. When something odd happens, notice it, pay attention to it, ask yourself, is there a perspective from which this could sensibly mean something? Uh, and under, that's understanding that coincidences do happen. There could be things happen that don't have any meaning whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But you start seeing the same odd reference turn up in two or three different contexts in a short amount of time. That's a trigger for me that there's something going on here that I need to look at, something I might have missed. Um, the more you pay attention to it, the more it tries to seek you out because someone's listening, basically. Something. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I agree. But one last question from Oswald. Wants to know if you'd ever read any John Michael Greer. Um, been a long time, and I couldn't tell you the title of anything. I have read some John Michael Greer, but it was a very long time ago, and I, I couldn't tell you any details of it. Uh, is there something I should read by John Michael Greer? That's all it said. It wasn't really a great question. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's it. That's all the questions we have for tonight. Okay. So. Well, um, this material is um, pretty dense. Uh, the the book I was talking about when I was writing it, I was trying to convince my publisher to to fast track it because um, it was holding up your next book, right? Or you wanted was, to get? It, yeah, I, I was working. On, they had a book in process on the Maori Maori of New Zealand, and this material was begging to be talked about right this minute. And so I wanted to make a presentation to them about this, why this material was important. But I realized that it was complicated enough that I was going to have a hard time getting all the pieces in the right order to even explain it to them. So I worked up a PowerPoint presentation for myself <laughs> to keep myself on track in trying to present it to get, you know, the, the bits of it all right. That's great. So, <laughs> did you, uh, do you enjoy the haka as much as I do? <laughs> um, I enjoyed the Hakka. Um, also, there are connections linguistically to the um, to concepts that the Dogen have, and other cultures also also have. But uh, the Maori, I had intended to write the Maori book um, second in my process. I was going to write it right after the the first book that I self published, mm -hmm. um, but I kept getting bumped by other projects. Mm -hmm. By the time I finally got around to it, I, I had the perspective to realize the Maori connect every tradition and era I've um, written about. Much like the language etymology comes to a, a, a center point, and you find the Maori down at that point, too. Yep, absolutely. Interesting. Right. Oh, someone just asked a question. 
okay. it's a great question to end on too. Do you have any any funny John Anthony West stories? <laughs> <laughs> one one great John Anthony West story. He uh, he emailed me about oh it might be ten years ago now to say you know uh, there's a name for the work you're doing. It's called the Bridge of Sirah, S I R A H, and I thought. Okay, I did some. He says it comes out of Islam, and there's a chapter about it in one of Schwaller's books, I think, Sacred Science. And so I found the chapter and I read it. The upshot of the concept is that when the truth is ultimately found, it will be found to lie on a razor's edge between two chasms. And one chasm is essentially symbolic of, not, of science, and the other one is symbolic of superstition. So I wrote him back and I thanked him. I said, John, you have solved a mystery for me. I have uh, an adult daughter, but when she was three years old, she, before she knew, three or four years old, before she knew all of her letters and how to read and write fully, she drew a picture of me that she, it was of me. It resembles me. Um, it was actually a pretty good picture. She's a good artist. But at the top of the picture, she had written what she insisted was my name. And she only knew some of her letters, so just a combination of whatever letters she was, was writing at the time. But what she'd written on the picture was S-I-R-A-H, insisting that was my name. And so we saved the picture. We framed it, and we hung it up on the wall. So when John's email came in, um, I was sitting right next to where that picture was. I could scan it and send it back to him and say, guess what? <laughs> wow. <laughs> just resolved a mystery here. There are three or four different ways that that plays out that the names that get assigned through some of these traditions have um, connections uh, to me. Uh, when I wrote the first book, I um, was, the self-published book was called Hidden Meanings and was later republished as The Science of the Dogen. I was invited by one of John's friends to go down to New York to talk about the book. He wanted to meet in a diner to have a conversation about it. So... Uh, my wife, Risa, and I got, a, got on a train to go down to see him, and our son, adult son who was living in New York joined us. At the last minute, he asked if he could bring a friend of his along, and I said, sure, why not? Well, it turns out the meeting wasn't with John's friend. It was with the friend that was brought along who was not his friend. She was his spiritual advisor. The meeting was with her, and the meeting was conducted under her framework, and her framework was basically one of she would ask me a question about my life and I would give her an answer. And then she would explain to me how my answer demonstrated some aspect of the cosmology I was researching that pertained to me particularly. So like she would say, uh, tell me about your marriage. And I said to her, well, I've always uh, conceptualized Reese's my marriage as the large overlap of two circles. She said, that's the vesica Pisces. That's an important shape in, that in the field you're studying. Do you realize that? Do you realize that 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 your conception of of this important aspect of your life plays out in terms of that symbol? And I said, oh, that's very interesting. So we must have, have talked for an hour and a half. Uh, by the time we were finished, the final question she asked was, who did I think was responsible for the system of symbols that I was researching? And I told her that I didn't know who was responsible for it, that I knew enough to know that what would eventually tell me who. And she said, did you just say what will tell me who? I said, yes. She said, <laughs> we're done. 
And she, this is a very odd woman. She was so odd that the, the three of us didn't really even see her in the same way. But, but she presented as um, the messiest, unkempt bag woman, homeless person you could find on the, the street in New York. Unkempt hair, scraggly hair. She ate food with her fingers, pushing it into her mouth. Just very distasteful so person. <laughs> Sounds like Agra. At, at that point, she, um, she said, we're done. She got up from the table and um, left, walked out. That was it. We were finished. So then Risa and I took the train back to Albany. And when we got to Albany, there was an email from a woman I was connected to by email from Australia who claimed to be psychic. And she said she wanted to let me know that all of her psychic friends were really in a dither. They were upset. And what they were upset about was they knew about the meeting in New York, which I hadn't told anybody about. And the reason they were upset was because I had been granted permission to research things they wanted to research. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's that, that kind of stuff that goes on that you have enough of those things happen, you you're in a position where you can't say, no, that couldn't possibly be true. You know, right. you have to allow for things that, that might not be true. It just makes you wonder if you were some part, somehow part of the Dogon tribe back then. <laughs> that when, could be. Whenever it, that was. And, yeah. It's also actually that addresses one question that I didn't ask and because I felt you covered it so, so well earlier was um, it, it, I always ask about intent and fate. And so, you know, that really comes into question here with this example you just gave. Yeah, that's a, a re really interesting question. I'm not sure. Um, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what kind of a take I have on that. I don't really look at things in those, those terms. Um, I don't imagine that I'm fated to necessarily do a, a certain thing, although I realize for a lot of reasons that what's in our genetics has a high degree of influence over what we end up doing. So you could think of that as being fate. Mm -hmm. um, I do see that if people allow themselves to sort of go with the flow of energies, that they're, they're carried to things that are right for them. Yes. Um, and again, you can see that as fate. Um, there certainly are enough... Um, Psychic predictions that have come through things from people like Edgar Casey and um, people of that that caliber um, that have proven to be true to make us wonder whether the potentials of the timeline are fall within a within certain parameters that things are likely to go a particular way. Yeah, that there might be fixed aspects, right? Rather than and everything's also mutable. Predestination to a certain extent. Uh, the way the dynamics of the energy work. You have seven vectors that are being emitted by the spinning energy in the direction of the of the material realm. The one that that is least deflected is the one that's perpendicular. The other ones are more deflected. You get different vibrational energy energies with those the same way you get different vibrations of color in a rainbow. So there are indications to me that the way time works is an event only really happens when you have an intersection between linear time as it plays out um, circularly as a sundial and the equinox of the oscillation of time on the non-material side is a point where, where an event seems least obstructed. Mm -hmm. 
you have uh, Ganesha, a deity who, who relates, the elephant god in mm -hmm. India, who relates to these concepts of imposing and removing obstacles, which is really basically, basically the concept of resistance. You have concept of the I Ching in China, which um, plays out in the original trigram played out in three stages that compare to the oscillation of this energy. It's like equinoxes and solstices. It's the back and forth of the lines, of the, um, among the three lines. And so the way an event plays seem to be seems to be affected by the interface of these energies of time, non-materially and materially. Um, so that says to me that's the only space that that's the only stage of the entire process up and down the scale where there's even the possibility of introducing a random factor into things but there is the possibility there of introducing some randomness so i can't say that things are absolutely predetermined um but it looks to me as if on the non-material side someone can get at the timeline and and figure out what's likely to happen whether it actually happens or not which we've heard evidence of uh, from alleged whistleblowers. Uh, people like Andrew Bistrago talks about the Project Looking Glass or whatever the hell it was called, where they would remote view the future through however mean methods to do it. Right. Yeah. Now, I know people who are so intimately connected to the non-material that when you speak to them, they spend, okay, these people see m multiple timelines mm -hmm. and multiple versions of events. And when you speak to them, they spend as much time giving consideration to what they should or shouldn't say to you about something as they do formulating what they're going to say. Yes. It's because they're, they're caught in the bind. If they say something to you, they forewarn you about something that might not go well, and then it doesn't happen, then they've worried you for nothing. If they don't forewarn you about something that then happens, they feel like they caused it. Mm -hmm. So any, for, for a person to have that kind of an ability, and that kind of abil an ability is not, a, it's not a, um, a precise ability, it's a relative ability, because they can't precisely say this will happen. It's all potential. They can, just say, they can just say, it looks to me like this might happen. That's the way I think fate works, is that there are parameters within which an event's, how a an event's going to play out. That's yeah. my best guess. Almost like there's a, a rough plot and you get to ad lib. Yeah. Hey, um, <laughs> choose your own adventure book, you know. Yes. Exactly. But you're going to do it here <laughs> at this time over here. Great. Right, right. All right. And well, so, yeah, you, plugging. Did you plug yeah. your. The one from Inner Traditions, who is my publisher, is called Decoding Maori Cosmology. It's about um, a tribal group in New Zealand. A much, it's actually a fairly recent group. They've only been there since around 1100 AD. So for, in my terms, I'm dealing with um, cultures that are 3000 BC. So this is a very late tradition for me. Uh, that book was um, just out from Inner Traditions. Um, in October, I self-published a book because I couldn't convince the publisher to... to um, work on two books at the same time. It's that sort of a no-no in the publishing field. Um, it's called Seeking the Primordial. And that book talks more about the kinds of foundational um, concepts that we've been discussing tonight. Great. And I'm putting the links to these books in uh, Discord, everyone. So please join uh, our Discord server. There we go. All right. Um, okay. Stay, stay with us here. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And be sure to tune in next week when our guest is Mike Williams from the Sage of Quay Radio Hour. Should be a really interesting chat, too.
Thank you, Laird, and thank and chat. Thank you, yeah. everyone. Thank and you very much. Everyone, have a great night, and we'll see you next week.